the Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Well, folks, it's the Paul Leslie Hour coming at you. Honored that you tuned in. I know there's a lot of stuff going on in terms of news about the election, the various campaigns, lots of media to consume. So the fact that you listen to this show, that means a lot to me. We are now in our 17th year of broadcasting. I'm glad that we can keep this show going. If you want to support the show, you can go to thepaulleslie.com. There is a button that says support the show. You can make a contribution via PayPal. Any amount, small, medium, or large, supports the show and also helps extend our reach so that more people find this content. Do you hear the new theme song? That is the folk blues song, Karina Karina, performed and recorded by John Primerano. If you want to check out his website, it's johnprimerano.com. Now we're going to get into the interview with Kim Morrison. It's a very interesting story, very touching, very different from a lot of the interviews I've done, and I hope you all enjoy. Let's get into it. Hey, it's me. Our special guest, Kim Morrison, is a singer, songwriter, musician, backup vocalist, and recording artist. She has an incredible experience, originally from San Jose, California. She's been in the proverbial music city since 1969. As a songwriter, his work, her work has been covered by a long list of artists. Ray Charles, Gladys Knight, Johnny Lee, Mel Tillis, Frank Sinatra Jr., Dickie Betts. How's that for diversity? Kim Morrison is also a recording artist and is even writing a book called Goodbye, Linda Joe." Kim Morrison, thank you so much for being a guest. Oh, you're so welcome. It's wonderful to be here. It's an honor. So, as I was mentioning, you're originally from San Jose, California. I'm hoping you can tell us, what is your most vivid memory from growing up? Being in a lot of places. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> I, I wasn't, I wasn't in San Jose long. We traveled a lot. My father was an oil pipeline engineer and we traveled around a lot and, um, we were in so many places that we lived in New Mexico. We lived in uh, the mountains in Utah, we had a car that blew up in the middle of the desert in Utah. I mean, in uh, in on the way to Utah from uh, New Mexico, we were going to see my grandparents. So we had a big, huge family, and there was a <laughs> there was a lot of chaos. It was just it was just. It was fun. It was great, and it was wild and strange, some, but I always believe it's not how you start, it's how you finish, <laughs> and uh, sometimes you learn more what not to do from people in your lives than what to do, but as long as you learn and get the lessons, then it's not for nothing. Hmm. So was music something that you just came to naturally? Would you say it's like an innate ability in you? 
everybody in my family was musical. My mother did live radio when she was a kid. She was like a female George Jones before George Jones was popular. That was her style, kind of country blues. And she played guitar and wrote and played harmonica and really, really sang. And she was the one that made me want to sing. And then my sister Judy, I used to write a lot of poetry when I was little. And my sister Judy was the one that convinced me that I could be a songwriter. I used to bother her with my poems all the time. And she was the best guitar player in the house. So one day she said, you know, you could write a song. And I said, no, I couldn't. She said, what do you think songs are? They're poems put to music. All you have to do is figure out some music. And so she said, come on. She picked up her guitar and we went out under the orange tree in the backyard. And I was about 10 and... That's when I wrote my first song. Can you remember what that song was about? (laughs) (laughs) No. I probably wouldn't want to anyway if I could. But it's been so long and, you know, so many songs in the meantime. but, But she was the one that made me believe I could do it. Can you recall, perhaps, the first time that you performed publicly? When we were, I guess I was about, probably about nine, the eight youngest kids in our family and my mom and stepdad, we had a a family band and um, some of us played instruments and sang, everybody sang. Some of us, a couple of the little, the two youngest ones played spoons and my mom taught us harmonies. She was the one that made me want to be a, well, she uh, she taught me to sing harmony, and that's how I eventually became a backup singer, was singing with her. But we used to sing, our little family would play around uh, at uh, public functions around San Diego. And uh, if there weren't enough verses in the song for everybody to have a little solo, my mom would write extra verses. So that's that's how that started. I'm hoping you can tell us about your decision after high school. I understand that you decided to move to Hollywood. I moved there to uh, to live with my sister, Naoma. I wanted to get somewhere where I could maybe do a little more with my music because I had been living in San Diego and working with a great, really excellent band called the Centaurs. It was a really popular band. We opened some concerts in the area and gigged about five five or six nights a week. And um but I wanted to do try to do something as a writer and just expand musically what I was able to do. So she lived in North Hollywood. I started singing at the Palomino some with um Red Rhodes and his band and uh, Tom T. Hall and Bobby Bear came in and and Chris Christopherson and Mickey Newberry and they all kind of befriended me and uh, brought me here 
to Nashville in 69, and then in September, and I was signed to everything my first week in town, and I, I didn't know that that usually doesn't happen, but they kind of walked me into uh, into town. So I I was really, really fortunate. That's how I ended up here, but it was on en, en route through my sister <laughs> through my sister's house and the and the Palomino. So tell us about that experience. You mentioned meeting three just absolute iconic people in music. Tom T. Hall, Bobby Bear, and Chris Christopherson. What were they like to be around? They were like big brothers. They were incredible. Tom and uh, and Bobby were signed to New Keys Music, and that's who I ended up signing with. And um, I remember Chris and Mickey used to invite me over to Combine Music to um, hang out at the writers at the writers' room with them. And that uh, I got to hear, I came to hear the music by um, Mickey. Uh, like a couple of days after it was written, Sunday morning coming down, I I got to hear that like fresh off the out of the pen, you know. It was, uh, and then they would say, "So play me something you're working on," and you know it was like, "How can you even pick up a guitar?" You know after that, but they would say like. Well, here, on this line here, I think you could do more here. Maybe if you do do this or do that or, you know, I I got an education as a writer that you couldn't pay for, you know, just from them. And and Harlan Howard was really nice to me and Curly Putnam, who wrote Green Green Grass at Home. They just were really, really kind to me. Red Lane was really nice and... That was back in the days when the doors were more open in Nashville. It was now it's a little more closed up, and you have to really be solicited to to get in through the doors a lot, a lot of it now. But it was it was a lot more open then. So, being a girl from California, how do you recall the move to? Nashville, Tennessee. Was that something that was frightening? Was it intimidating? Were you excited? How how do you recall that? It was all of that. I was working at a grocery store, bagging groceries. I was a box boy, bag boy. And then I would sing at night at the Palomino's home. And um, Bobby Bear was friends with my brother-in-law. They grew up together. And Bobby lived with my brother-in-law and his family for a while. And so he came to visit, and my brother-in-law, Norm, said, why, why don't you, uh, I was Linda then, I hadn't become Kim yet, and uh, he said, Linda, why don't you play Bobby some songs? So I played him a few of my songs, and uh, he played a bunch of songs, and we just stayed up till like five in the morning playing songs back and forth, and then then I, I he left, and had to fly out to, uh, you know, to come back here. And uh, a couple of days later, I got a call from Bobby saying, do you want to come to Nashville? And I said, man, yeah, I mean, that's that that's a part of the dream, you know. And he said, well, we have a ticket for you at uh, 
at the waiting at the airport and your plane leaves at 8.05 tomorrow morning. So I didn't have a suitcase. I had this real pretty blue uh, pillowcase that was like satin. So I packed my mine and my daughter's uh, clothes in it and put her on one hip and my uh, little bag over the other and, and got on the plane and came here. Wow. <laughs> Bobby gave me my first guitar that I had when I came here. I, you know, cause I didn't, uh, I didn't have a guitar. I used to borrow my brother-in-law's guitar all the time to write. So Bobby gave me an old, uh, grammar guitar, old 12 string that he had. And, uh, that's what I've wrote on when I first came here. Something you were telling me about the last time we talked, I'm hoping you can tell the story of how you became Kim Morrison because you weren't born with that name, but tell us that story. Well, I was Linda Jo Morrison, and uh, I wanted to leave the... uh, my my childhood was pretty violent and abusive. So I wanted to leave that behind and become a different person and kind of start over. So I came here and I liked the name Kim. Uh, some couple of friends helped me decide on that before I left and came here. So and I was only I was awarded the state of California and I was 18 but that back then the uh, legal age was 21 so and I didn't have a legal guardian I was an emancipated minor and uh, so I we got an attorney named Dick Franks and we went to court and I changed my name from Linda to Kim legally and we changed my age from 18 to 21 so that my signature would be binding and I could sign contracts. And uh, so that's how I became Kim Morrison. I kept my last name and just uh, changed uh, Linda Joe to Kim and just became a different person. I, I became much more less timid and inhibited as a person. If I had a guitar or a mic, I was bulletproof. But on a personal level, I was very timid. So it just helped me just have a little more self-confidence, I guess you would call it. Is there a part of you that you you still feel like Linda Joe, or are you Kim Morrison now? Oh, no, the older I get, the more Linda comes back. Hmm. I, when I started writing that book, I thought I had buried those demons really deep. But when I started writing that book, I had to dig them up, you know, to to write it. So it just, um, it kind of, I had to relive a lot of that again in my mind. So I think that, and, and I had not seen my two older sisters in uh, about 22 years. And they moved out here from San Diego. And so when I got around them, I just, when I was Linda to them. I was still Linda. And so I, when I was around them, I was, I was me, but 
I was Linda, but then when I, uh, and I let my husband see that part of me, but I, I don't let a lot of people see that side of me because it's very vulnerable and very uh, easily hurt, I guess. That's the same as vulnerable, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's, uh, I, I just have more armor as Kim. Interesting. Well, at the beginning of the show, when I was introducing you, I was talking about the very diverse names of people who have recorded your work, very iconic singers. And I could have named even more. I could have said also Dave Dudley. I could have said Johnny Rodriguez, the great Irma Thomas. So many people have recorded songs that you wrote. Who was the first one to record a Kim Morrison song? Dave Dudley. I got that cut about six weeks after I got to town. And I didn't even really realize what what it was, you know, what it, what it meant. I was just trying to learn to be a writer, and, and um, everything was just happening pretty fast. So I didn't really appreciate the value of that cut for for a few years. But I loved Dave. He was just such a wonderful person. He was... <laughs> he... Uh, we had a little ceremony one time up in Wisconsin. We went up there to do a benefit for the Chippewa Nation. And um, he had a lodge up there. And so we had a little ceremony up there. And he adopted me as his, he was my Polish godfather. <laughs> he became my Polish godfather. That's what he called himself. But he was just really precious. And he... um he was another person I learned quite a lot from. How did you come to hear his recording of it? Did you hear it before the album came out, or how did that happen? Kevin Key played it for me. He was my publisher, and uh, he played it for me after they cut it. What does that feel like when you're a songwriter and you hear a major singer, and there they are, they're singing your song? Oh, it's really incredible. It's, it's, um, well, I, I wrote, uh, co-wrote Your Memory Ain't What It Used to Be with, uh, Dickie Betts and Mary Fielder. And when it came out, I recognized the intro. I was, I was at Kroger and uh, I recognized the intro on the radio. I was playing the radio, listening for it. And so I pulled into the parking space real quick and threw all the doors open and opened the hatchback and turned the radio up as loud as I could get it. I had a little Chevette and uh, I was jumping up and down in the parking lot screaming, I wrote this song. I wrote this song. Everybody was looking at me like I was nuts, but <laughs> it's just a, it's an incredible feeling when you hear, you know, when you hear another artist and it's an honor because there are so many great songs out there. It really is an honor when someone likes your song well enough to want to sing it. This might be a difficult question, but who did the best job of recording a song that you wrote or co-wrote? I love the way that um, the way that Keith Whitley interpreted our song "Flying Colors" on the "Don't Close Your Eyes" album, but. 
Ty Herndon recorded one of ours called the uh, Hat Full of Rain that just is like, it's, it's just classic. But I think that the one that ma- just made me fall on the floor the most was hearing my words come out of uh, Ray Charles and Gladys Knight. I co-wrote the first duet that they did together called I Wish I'd Never Loved You at All. And Dobie Gray and I did the demos on it. You know, Dobie from Drift Away. Oh, yeah. You probably talked to him, too. (laughs) (laughs) No, I never did. You've interviewed just about everyone. (laughs) But uh, your your list of people you've talked to is like the history of... uh, of California, you know, of LA, of the movies and TV and and music. It's wonderful. Well, it sure has been interesting, I have to say. But you know, one of the names that you and I have in common, I'm hoping you can tell us about how Frank Sinatra Jr. came to record a couple of your songs. When I interviewed him, there was an album he mentioned in particular. It was a country album. It's all right that he did. How did he come to know your songs? Well, I was uh, in between deals as a writer. I was looking for a writing deal, and I heard that Frank Sinatra and his daughter Nancy were opening a publishing company here. And a friend of mine named Tony Migliori told me he was a great piano player here in town. And um, he encouraged me to make an appointment when they got their office open. And so I did. And Billy Strange was the one that was running the office. He was, he wrote uh, Limbo Rock. I think it was Limbo Rock. He 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 was an, an incredible guitar player. He was uh, Ernie Ford's guitar player when Ernie Ford had his TV show. And he was uh, just legendary himself. And so I heard he was running the office, and I called and I made an appointment. And when I went in there, I had a, a tape with three songs, and and he, um, I sat down and he said, "How are you doing?" I said, uh, "I'm scared to death," <laughs> and he said, "So am I." And I said, "Well, great. Here's my tape." <laughs> and so they signed me about a week later, and when they were getting ready to start picking material for Sinatra Jr., my some of my songs got thrown into the hat, and thank God he picked one or two of them. I think, I think he did two. I'm not sure. But so I lucked out again. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. And, you know, in addition to this list of great singers who have recorded your work, you have been able to sing as a backup singer in the recording studio and live with just an incredible list. Again, Ray Charles, but people like Percy Sledge, people Bryson, Roy Orbison, even Tiny Tim. I mean, my goodness, it's it's such an impressive list. B.B. King, Billy Joe Royal, Sam Moore, Jackson Brown, you could just keep on going. But I'm curious, from your perspective, who was the biggest honor to sing as a backup vocalist with? Probably Roy Orbison. I worked with him on the road, and so and also Ray. 
Charles. He, but Roy was, uh, he was just incredible. He still sang the songs in the same key they were recorded in. He, he was just, uh, sometimes I would just be watching him and forget to sing. You know, because he was just, you get so absorbed and so drawn in when he would do Leah and Blue Bayou and Pretty Woman, all those great songs. I mean, it was it was almost hard to keep from jumping out of your skin just knowing that you were up there, you know, with him. And he was such a sweetheart, too. He was one of the most humble people that you would ever meet. And, I mean, if you met him on the street and didn't know who he was, you would never think that he was the the legend that he, that he was. Hmm. This book that you're writing, Goodbye, Linda Joe, I'm curious, what is that like to do? I mean, it seems very intimidating to write a book, but from your perspective, what's that like to get your life story down? Well, I wanted my my grandkids and great-grandkids to know what happened in our family. It's like, you know, putting your, showing, showing your descendants the roots so they can learn from it. Maybe they can be better people than some of the people that came before them. They can Learned the strength, you know, there was a lot of strength in our family, but a lot of, just a whole lot of demons. And my little sister and I spent a lot of time in and out of foster homes. My mother was a suicidal alcoholic. And when she would try to kill herself, it was really, really serious. She shot herself through the chest with a deer rifle on my 14th birthday, but she lived through it. But it just, I, I didn't want to be that anymore. I didn't want to hmm. carry that into my future as a writer. And I didn't, I wanted to be able to draw on that as a writer, those experiences, to be able to pull something deeper out of the creative well. But I didn't want to be a victim anymore. Wow. I know what you're saying is resonating with somebody out there. And for that person who is in a spot where they just, they don't want to be a victim anymore and they're facing things that they, they don't know if they have the power to, what would you say to them? It's not how you start. It's how you finish. We are all something in the human experience, something in the human nature put something inside of us that if we dig deep enough, we can find it. It's a strength that is hard. Hmm. Sorry. No, it's it's uh it's okay. I I appreciate you you sharing everything with us. Thank you so much. I would say to people out there, find a dream. That's part of the problem in the world today. 
there are not enough dreams. Find a dream you can grab onto because it can save your life. It can get you through everything if you just hang on to it. And don't let anyone convince you that you can't get there. We lived in, we were homeless. We lived in foster homes. But you can still take all of that and and use it as experience. Use it as stepping stones to get where you want to go in your life. And just don't let anything ever hold you back. You can be as big as you can dream. Hmm. I like that. I always like to end my shows. I give the guest the stage. And this isn't limited to music. This is for you to speak to anybody who's listening to us, for anyone who's tuned in. What would you say to that person who's with us right now? Love. Just love. That's the most powerful thing that there is. It's the only real power. All the rest is counterfeit. Love and lead your life with love. Let it go before you with every step you take. And sometimes you're going to lose. But sometimes when you win, it's, it's, it makes it all worth it. Hmm. And that's all I would say. But just lead with love. Well, Kim Morrison, I want to thank you very much for this very heartfelt interview. I would like to invite you to come back, maybe when the book is ready or, or whenever you want, really. You're one of the special ones. I really appreciate you doing an interview. Oh, God bless you, and thank you so much. It's been an honor, and I would love to come back anytime that you can <laughs> that you can find time for me. I would love it. All right. Well, God bless you, Kim Morrison. Until next time. Take care and God bless everyone out there. Love to the world. Goodbye.